Welcome to Capital Close-Up. I'm your host, Paul Hodes. We're broadcast on WKXL AM and FM in Concord, New Hampshire, and 101.9 in beautiful Manchester, New Hampshire. And we're podcast wherever it is in the universe you find your podcasts. If you're listening to this by podcast, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Tell your friends, like us on social media. It really helps us out to expand the reach of this great uh, show. Um, today, I am really pleased to welcome back a, a good friend, uh, Rob Werner. Rob is the New Hampshire State Director for the League of Conservation Voters, the national advocacy organization that works to turn environmental values into national, state, and local priorities. Rob formerly served as the National Field Director of Americans for Campaign Reform. So he's got the genuine heart of a do-good guy. He's a public policy analyst and advocate. He's organized successful advocacy and legislative campaigns for the American Heart Association, Smoke-Free New Hampshire, the American Cancer Society, with extensive experience in the healthcare center, He's uh, worked in private government, nonprofit areas. He's just become a board member of the New Hampshire Preservation Alliance. He's a graduate of the Northfield Mount Hermon School, the University of New Hampshire. He's got an MBA from Suffolk University. He's been to the Harvard Kennedy School. He's a long-term elected representative on the Concord City Council, chairing the Energy and Environment Advisory Committee. He's active all over Concord in the New Hampshire Chamber of Commerce. He's a graduate of Leadership New Hampshire. Um, Rob is just a busy guy. Welcome back to Capital Close-Up, Rob Werner. Well, thanks so much, Paul. One correction, I yeah. am a catamount, not a wildcat. Okay, a catamount, <laughs> not a wildcat. You know, is there a difference in between a catamount and a wildcat? <laughs> Is it the tail? Is it the ears? Well, certainly there's a difference between the green mountain state and the granite state in yeah, terms that's of that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But hey, yeah. I'm really glad. I'm really glad to be with you yeah. again this morning, of course. Yeah. Well, you and I often check in on energy and environment issues because you are the go-to guy for me on what the state of play is around energy and the environment. And we're enjoying sunshine and uh, extremely warm weather. And some folks say, well, it's just August. And other folks say, wait a second, something's going on here. Um, we have uh, record flooding in the Midwest. Kentucky has been underwater with uh, massive flooding resulting in deaths. I saw a picture uh, the other day, I think it was from the Dakotas where there were 60 cars in a slew of mud underwater from floods there. Um, meanwhile, in the West, uh, it's been uh, it's been a, a hot, hot and busy wildfire season. Europe is a buzz and a flame um, with wildfires. The effects of climate change and global warming are clearly accelerating at this point. I, I want to start by uh, asking a little bit about your work with the League of Conservation Voters. 
Um, people hear the term advocacy organization, but but they may not understand the scope and breadth of the work that the League does. Tell us a little bit about the League and your work. Uh, and I'm particularly interested in your advocacy role as it may relate to uh, the next election season. Well, thanks. Uh, yes. So advocacy uh, is a very broad term. It talks about and connects to community organizations, other allied organizations, whether that's you know public health, other uh, organizations that work in this environmental uh, clean energy, uh, forestry. We all share so much of, in terms of the con concerns around the impacts of climate change and the urgent need to move towards a clean energy economy. Um, but it also involves um, working with elected officials, uh, both at the State House in, in Concord and with our, uh, with our congressional delegation here in New Hampshire, which as you know, is very supportive of these priorities that we're talking about. Um, and it involves motivating and mobilizing our members to make sure that these elected officials at all levels uh, really hear about the wide and broad support for moving ahead with policies that are really going to help in this area. So that's what we call our climate action organizing uh, mode, if you will. We endorse candidates. Uh, we provide financial support for candidates. And here in New Hampshire, uh, we are about to move into uh, what we call our green roots uh, mode, um, transition into that actually next week where we uh, specifically uh, help our candidates that we've endorsed. And on the federal level, we have endorsed all four members of our congressional delegation, uh, or all three that are up for re-election, uh, rather. We did work with Senator Shaheen in the last cycle, and she was re-elected re by a wide margin. But Congresswoman Custer, Congressman Pappas, Senator Hassan, we have endorsed all three of those folks. They have been consistent climate champions, uh, so we will be helping to get our members in the state to come in and help those candidates and help the overall effort to get more climate champions elected, not only on the federal level, but on the state level as well. We do have the ability and the uh, infrastructure to help uh, candidates that are running for state representative, state senator, executive council, governor, because as we know, it's very important in terms of getting things done that the folks that have their hands on the levers of power to get things done share our values. Have you uh, made an endorsement in the governor's race? Well, uh, it's a it's a little complicated because LCV we do not have a uh, state league here in New Hampshire. However. There is an organization uh, that many of the folks that you would know uh, called Responsible Environmental Protection for New Hampshire. That is a New Hampshire political committee that is becoming very well resourced. We will be making endorsements and financial contributions to state level candidates through that uh, entity, through that vehicle. Um, so LCV is associated with that, uh, helpful with that, but it's not LCV national in that 
aspect. We have the federal aspect, we have the state aspect, which we have to approach a little differently just because of the way we're set up here. Um, but we can still be effective and help our allies. Ah, the rules for campaign money. What a what a delightful, what a delightful, yes. what a delightful subject. How do we how do we build the brick walls that are somewhat see-through and transparent, yet comply with the rules of campaign financing, which those of us who lived in politics all must abide by? Ever-changing. And sometimes arcane, but um, you know, still, still important. So, bottom line is, though, that we will have the resources and the effort to help both our federal candidates here and people running for state office, and that's that's what people take that away. Okay, so uh, I've I've already forgotten the name, the long name you gave me about the state <laughs> organization through which uh, Responsible Environmental Protection for New Hampshire responsible hang on i'm writing it down environmental <laughs> protection for nh the r-e-p-f-n-h the r-e-p-n-h we call it r-e-p-n-h got yes. it well that, that's really that's good to know um and and folks for, for those of you who are listening you know obviously the these are not-for-profit organizations and 501 c3s for federal organizations and um, and it's really important that citizens are empowered to take action for the candidates that uh, we care about. Um, and I say this on a on a uh, bipartisan basis, hoping that my listeners will pitch in to make sure that you're supporting candidates who care about uh, our environment, who care about the challenge of global warming um, and the climate change that, that we're seeing uh, because it's uh, really critical. Now, with that introduction and correction about the REPNH, um, has REPNH uh, endorsed or uh, expected to support one gubernatorial candidate or another? Well, I think that uh, folks might infer in terms of who that might be, but we certainly are going to be helpful uh, where we can. Uh, and I think it's really important on the state level that there is an opportunity to uh, flip the House to a pro-environment majority, the New Hampshire House. Uh, there are an awful lot of good people running. Uh, same goes for the New Hampshire Senate. You know, right now, the uh, Republicans have relatively narrow majorities in the legislature. And given the overall uh, sort of national uh, narrative that's developing in terms of progress on uh, environmental issues, the uh, passage of the, um, of the bill over the weekend uh, within the Senate and the prospective uh, passage of that bill in the House this Friday and getting to the president next week, um, there's a lot to cheer. Um, there's a lot that's been accomplished in a pretty short time, actually, by this administration nationally. Uh, gas prices are coming down. Look at the jobs report that came out last week, over 500,000 jobs. 
you don't normally rep, you know, produce five over five, half a million uh, jobs when you're in a supposed recession. So I really question that uh, analysis of, of folks who say that, that we're in a recession. Yes. So I think you, you have this sort of atmosphere building up, certainly the, the choice issue and what happened in Kansas. I think there's a lot of political forces that um, are converging that can not only be helpful with our federal candidates, but I think also uh, help support um, folks running for state office that are really trying to um, represent folks here in New Hampshire uh, in terms of their concerns. So you we're know, hopeful about it. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I know that you are um, uh, you are always uh, appropriately careful as um, in your position to. Um, uh, talk about politics in a way that is not uh, necessarily partisan. And uh, I, I appreciate that and it's important. Um, and it, it, you know, you're not, you're not shy about your views and, and certainly people can, can take inferences from, from what you say, but overall in, in looking at the political scene in New Hampshire and uh, I, was, I just did an interview the other day with a paper from New York that called me. Uh, I suppose they, they thought as a former congressman, I might have some perspective on politics in New Hampshire. And overall, uh, one of the things we've been looking at in some of the other shows that we do here on the station and podcast um, is the, the recent trends, um, at least in terms of what we're seeing in terms of polling and voter preference and sort of keeping our ear to the ground is that there seems to be a political shift, a shift in the political winds. Um, uh, just a few weeks ago, um, in terms of the partisan politics, people were looking at uh, Democratic prospects with gloom, doom, and dire Dire, dire prospects and thinking that uh, there was going to be a real uh, wipeout at all levels coming up in the midterms. And, and there have definitely been some shifts uh, in that, in, in what looked like overwhelming headwinds that now um, are, are interesting. Uh, for example, there seems to be a shift in the, in the general congressional preference polls that uh, wonder whether, you know, that ask whether or not a generic ballot Democratic or Republican candidates are favored. Now it seems to be some slight shift towards Democrats. The recent um, results of in Kansas on uh, uh, the issue around a constitutional prohibition on abortion have given uh, people a sense that uh, the issue uh, it may be a powerful issue in the midterms that favor Democrats, that people are unhappy. And now we have the passage of this, of the, of the federal bill, the IRA, um, which we're, later in the show, uh, we're going to talk about in some detail, all of which seem to, to sort of uh, move the needle away from gloom and doom towards possibilities that voters are paying attention, not just to the pocketbook issues that usually drive voters. And because we see gas prices coming down, there have been some articles now showing some easing of inflation, but that other issues around 
uh, uh, women's reproductive choice and climate change, global warming, and other issues may be uh, may be issues in the fall that make a difference. Uh, I want to go back. I want to go back um, to the state of play in New Hampshire. Um, I have read the 2022 state energy strategy uh, that was put out by the um, new, essentially, state energy agency. Um, but I guess the overall question is, are we making progress on renewable energy in New Hampshire? Um, are we still a donut hole? Um, what about community solar? And is that a, is that a bright spot? Um, and I think we'll, we'll, we'll probably end up this segment with that question, and uh, then we'll pick it up again after a break. But what what's your thought? What's your take? What's your take on the current state of play? Um, in New Hampshire, we still have a lot of work to do. We're making some baby steps, as you mentioned. I think the whole aspect of community power and more and more communities getting interested in that, and the fact that the Public Utilities Commission last week approved those rules and those guidelines—that's terrific. But um, and certainly the market is more and more demanding um, clean energy as prices fall vis-a-vis -vis traditional energy sources. But at the same time, we're still very much behind our New England neighbors. About a month ago, I went up to Augusta uh, and I spent the day at the Maine Climate Council conference. And it was truly inspiring. And part of the reason that it was inspiring certainly compared to what we struggle with here in New Hampshire, is that you had the whole of state government on the same page, the governor, the state agency heads, bipartisan group of legislators saying, we support these ambitious energy investment goals because we know it's gonna benefit our citizens, it's gonna create economic opportunity for communities, and it's gonna create jobs. Uh, and they're plowing a lot of money into energy efficiency. We are, we made, certainly made an improvement over what happened last year at the PUC. But we have a long way to go in terms of our, uh, what we're doing with our, uh, with our energy policy vis-a-vis -vis our neighbors in the region. And it's costing us. I like to say that the fact that we in New Hampshire still, from a policy point of view, do not make the same kind of level of investments in energy efficiency uh, for local communities, for schools, businesses uh, that, our, that our neighboring states are doing means that there's money coming out of the pockets of our New Hampshire residents every single day as a result of this inaction and this uh, lack of imagination, I would like to call it, in terms of what we could do compared to what our neighbors are doing. Um, one quick thing, one of the fastest growing parts of our bill that you get every month is the transmission cost. Now, because the neighbors around us, our neighboring states are making such progress and significant investments in energy efficiency, the relative burden of transmission costs for those states are going down. That cost has to shift somewhere to a state that's not doing that much. And that's the problem that we face. We've got to solve that. So we're talking with Rob Werner here on Capital Close-Up about the state of play um, in energy and New Hampshire. We'll be talking about some of the national issues 
Uh, New Hampshire is behind its neighbors in dealing responsibly and imaginatively uh, with the uh, high energy costs in the state and the perils of global warming. The latest uh, state energy uh, document, which is a New Hampshire's 10-year state energy strategy from the New Hampshire Department of Energy. Um, the New Hampshire Department of Energy is a new department. Uh, tell us a little bit about how it was created, why it, and why it was created. Well, it was created through the budgetary process last year. And the whole concept of having a Department of Energy in New Hampshire that would pull together all of the various aspects of energy policy and have the Public Utilities Commission, for example, be under it, and just everybody under one roof. Uh, certainly, we, a number of us, again, on both sides of the aisle politically have been talking about the need for this for a while. I think generally it's a very good idea to have a commissioner level agency around energy. Most other states have that because it provides some accountability in terms of policy making and coordination. Now, of course, we know that personnel is policy. So it's really important that whoever is making those decisions and leading such an agency is, and from our point of view, um, making sure that uh, they're doing so in a way that's gonna benefit our consumers, move us to a clean energy economy. Again, not only uh, con combating the urgent crisis of climate change, but doing, such, doing so in a way that's gonna create economic opportunity and jobs for people. That is so important, I think, to connect all of that together. Um, because, you know, uh, Climate is an opportunity in this way. And I think that's what we need to uh, do to approach it that way. Um, so I, I certainly support the department, uh, having a Department of Energy, again, in terms of bringing all the various discussions and, and policy under one roof. I think that's important. But again, it, it, you know, who is running the, the department and what are the kind of policies they're actually proposing? Yeah, you know, let, 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 let's not mince words here. My perception, and this is mine, is that um, our governor, Governor Sununu, has uh, his policies uh, and have long been um, hostile to um, imaginative uses and appropriate uh, focus on renewable energy uh, for whatever reason, whether it's money, whether it's uh, individual uh, predilection, whether it's a genuine belief that um, uh, New Hampshire's energy needs can be met uh, by fossil fuels. Um, uh, for some reason, uh, and unfortunately, our governor and the Republican-dominated legislature are hostile to renewable energy. I make no bones about it. I'm, I'm, I'm working in the business. I am a promoter and advocate for renewable energy because I think we're facing a crisis of global proportions that is not in the future, it's here and now, and that progress on uh, moving away from a fossil fuel economy to a clean, uh, a, a clean economy is critical to our survival as a species. 
as well as, frankly, um, uh, the future of our economy. Well, I would make a point about the the 10-year plan. It relies far too much on the market. And it's not that the market is unimportant. You know, the market can be our friend, but it is also the role of government and leadership to provide goals, to provide the resources to move those goals, and to, you can get to a situation where you're working with market forces to move us faster in the direction that we need to go, but you cannot rely solely on the market to solve this problem. And I think this is where this this 10-year plan really goes awry and in the wrong direction. It absolutely does. And I'm going to read uh, uh, some of the plan that points up this challenge. And the interesting thing is, so you've got, we have the New Hampshire State Energy uh, Agency approach um, to that is hostile to using the power of government to benefit the population of the state through appropriate support for renewable energy versus what we've just seen at the federal level. And ultimately that's gonna be a very interesting both dichotomy, but also a very interesting relationship. Here's Here's what our state says about government support for renewable energy. It says renewable energy will continue to grow as a percentage of total electricity generation in New England. And this comes, by the way, in light of the fact that in 2021, New Hampshire got 1.1% of its uh, electricity needs from uh, solar power, for example. And in the rest of New England, it's approximately 6.6%. So we're, we're, we're six times off the pace of the rest of New England in solar power. And the Energy Committee uh, Agency goes on to say, in past years, federal and state energy and tax policies not competitive markets, were the primary drivers of the construction of renewable resources in New England. In other words, recognizing that that federal and state policies are important drivers. Historically, they go on to say the growth in renewable energy has been largely driven by preferable tax treatment, subsidies, and government mandated preferences. While those policies still have a major and often decisive impact, Our state energy agency says, technological advances have rapidly reduced the cost of some renewables to the point that they are cost competitive without additional government supports. Now, what does all that verbiage mean? That verbiage means New Hampshire isn't gonna do much to support renewable energy. The state of New Hampshire is not gonna do it. So if you're out looking for solar power, um, what you're gonna find is, you're gonna find some help from the federal government. You're gonna find, and, and, and we'll talk about how that's gonna change, but you're not gonna find anything from the state that, that is truly a help to moving to renewables because I believe that it's an ideologic preference that is misguided and antiquated and anti-progressive when we need progressive policies. And it says, let the markets do it. And while it's true that, for example, with solar energy, um, 
the cost of the equipment of solar panels has come way down and the efficiency of panels has increased and there are federal subsidies available. In every other state around New England, there are state programs that, that support renewable energy and help people move that way. And New Hampshire is saying, ah, that's not the role of the state. We'll let the markets do it. And I remind people that, and I used to say this when I was running for office, what Abraham Lincoln said about markets is, and the role of government, he would say, you know, the role of government is to do what the free market cannot or will not do so well uh, uh, for itself. And in this case, where we are needing an immediate, rapid move from fossil fuels to renewable energy, it is time for government to step in to do what the free markets will not do rapidly enough, and that is to work for the citizens to give us cleaner air, a healthier environment, and to make an effort. Because New Hampshire is not alone in the world, but we need to make, make an effort to deal with global warming and climate change. We're seeing the impacts right here in New Hampshire every day. Let me give you a small example that I learned while I was in Maine that I thought was really interesting. So the city of Auburn, Maine has decided to match the efficiency Maine rebate that folks would get for a heat pump. So what that practically means is if you go to Home Depot or Lowe's and you spend $1,600, $1,800 on a heat pump, which of course is important in terms of electrifying the thermal aspect of our energy production, you will get an $8,000 rebate from Efficiency Maine. That's because the state of Maine had decided, unlike the state of New Hampshire, to make more robust investments in energy efficiency in partnership with the utilities. That city of Auburn is using its American Rescue Plan funds to match that $8,000. They've spent $100,000 so far matching it. So there you go. You've almost got your heat pump that's not going to cost you as a consumer very much money because the state of Maine has decided that we want to incentivize people to electrify their home thermal systems because it's more efficient and will save them money and will save the population of Maine money over time. So that's the kind of policy that has foresight and implementation and seems very effective. But wait a second, um, we have a state energy agency and they must be experts and they tell us, they say, while some states may attempt to drive innovation through mandates and subsidization, New Hampshire will never win a battle of subsidies. Instead, our state should enable creativity and entrepreneurial endeavors by refraining from picking winners and losers among energy technologies. New Hampshire can foster a sustainable and dynamic energy economy by ensuring a favorable regulatory environment for new technologies to flourish, not a regulatory and statutory environment based on favoritism. So in other words, they're saying, hands off, we're just gonna let whatever happens happen. And I don't understand, and perhaps you can help me understand, is it hypo simply hypocrisy to say that we can 
foster a sustainable and dynamic energy economy by ensuring a favorable regulatory environment when 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 subsidies clearly are 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 what are what help drive the move to renewable energy is this just hypocritical political gobbledygook that says we're just going to keep on um, using fossil fuels uh, and by the way in terms of fossil fuel folks while you all were paying five dollars plus a gallon our fossil fuel companies the great oil monoliths were reaping billions and billions and billions of dollars in profits now if we want to move to a clean energy economy uh, don't you think it's reasonable for the government to say okay we need to give a little bit of a helping hand to make this happen to create jobs, to protect the environment, to do something about climate change. And by the way, in New Hampshire, even with 56% of our energy electricity coming from nuclear power um, and so little coming from solar and renewable energy, we really, it's time to do something. It's time for the government to do something. Um, it seems to me that we've got this, as they say, back asswards. <laughs> Well, I mean, look at what's going on on the federal level with the Inflation Reduction Act. This $369 billion investment is going to create more, it's going to attract and create more private investment. Uh, how, how does that work? Well, because, you know, private companies already know where things are going and where the money is to be made in the future. So that's great. And that's where... You know, banks, major banks are making investments in, you know, clean energy far more than they are in fossil fuels, although they obviously are continuing to do so with fossil fuels. But the but the the preponderance of all these investments that the financial industry is making is met very much weighted towards renewable energy because they see where the future lies. What is the business models of the future? Where is money going to be made? And so we have that dynamic. And then on top of it, with this very large investment in clean energy and, and incentives, it just helps speed that process. Government investment historically has well leveraged private investment in so many areas, as we know. And this is, will be no different in terms of that. This will speed our efforts around creating more renewable energy. There's no question. You know what? Some of the provisions of this new federal law, which has now passed the Senate, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, whatever you called it, um, uh, you know, I mean, I'm a child of a certain era. When I think IRA, I think about Ireland. I don't think <laughs> about the Inflation uh, Reduction Act or I think about my 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 pitifully small retirement fund. Um, you know, is this a country? Are they talking about contributing to my IRA? I don't think so. But it one of the features is that there is a multi-billion dollar investment, as you've said, in um, clean energy technology and policy that is intended to reduce uh, our emissions by approximately 40%. Um, it, it goes a long way towards reaching our goals 
on, on emissions reduction, which are critical to combating climate change. It doesn't go as far as many would like, but it goes, this is the most significant legislation in our history to deal with climate change and global warming. One of the things that it does, um, just for example, as somebody who's uh, doing some work in the solar area, uh, when I go out and talk to people about uh, installing solar, I talk about uh, the investment tax credit, uh, which is a government subsidy, essentially, for installing solar. And uh, it has been um, at 26% uh, in terms of an investment tax credit. So if you were a business thinking about uh, putting solar on your roof, let's say you're an auto dealer. And, and as we drive around the state, you can see these massive flat roofs that so many car dealerships have, but you're thinking of, does it pay? And you're thinking about the cost. Well, with an investment tax credit, this is not tax advice, so everybody should check with their accountant, but with an investment tax credit from the federal government, if you were gonna spend $100,000 on a solar installation, you could, because of this investment tax credit, pay 26% less out of pocket. One of the things that the new IRA does, it now will have a 30% credit and the 30% investment tax credit for solar energy, geothermal, fiber optic solar, fuel cells, micro turbine, small wind, offshore wind, combined heat and power, and waste energy recovery. It's, it's pretty extraordinary to think that if you're a business, when this law goes into effect, um, you will be able to save 30% on the cost of renewable energy uh, policy, uh, renewable energy investments. And, and it's extraordinary that we're going to have this at the federal level. And in many states in New England, that will be combined with additional state help, um, which is all going to be an incentive to the market. It's going to be an incentive to entrepreneurial activity. It's going to be incentives to inventors. It's going to be incentives to the massive change that we need to make as quickly as possible. Because as I drive around New Hampshire, I just don't see the kind of renewable energy acceptance uh, that we need to have in order to make the move that we need to make. So Rob, from where you're sitting, um, the bill, and when you read the, the sort of summary of this, it is, it is tax credit and after tax credit, which is essentially a subsidy for all aspects of our economy. It's a, it represents a huge shift in thinking at the federal level about the role of the appropriate role of government in making the switch we need to, to make and helping the market because the market won't do it alone quickly enough. What do you think? Well, first of all, I guess my first reaction to, you know, you're talking about these, these tax credits and subsidies is what does the market want more than anything else? And that is some time horizon of certainty. And one of the great things about this bill is all the credits that you talked about, 
it's going to be extended for 10 years. It's going to create that environment, as we were talking about in terms of this large government investment, to be able to leverage private investment over a significant time horizon of certainty. And that's going to be enormously helpful. Uh, it's got so many aspects of, of energy, transportation, investments in healthy communities, manufacturing, buildings, agriculture, public lands and waters. I mean, this really is such a significant uh, policy achievement. Uh, we assume that the House is going to pass it on Friday, um, and you know, we fully expect that to happen uh, and be on the president's desk next week for signature. So this is, this is an enormous accomplishment. The other thing that it does is, you know, we have a, another international gathering coming up in November, the follow-on to some of the work that was done last year in Glasgow. It's going to be in Egypt this year, early November. And for the United States to be able to bring this on the table to that gathering, to say that the United States is not only jawboning folks in terms of the importance of this, we are putting money where our mouth is. We are making policy. And again, over a long time horizon in terms of being able to have uh, investments and uh, certainty. It's, it's pretty extraordinary because of the breadth of of the breadth of the approach. It's not just, it's not just for residences. It's not just for business. Um, the new federal legislation greatly expands domestic manufacturing. It provides real support for domestic manufacturing of the components of renewable energy. One of the really critical uh, areas that it addresses for the first time are what we might call environmental and climate justice block grants in which millions of dollars are gonna be made available to underserved communities, which traditionally are at the greatest risk of the impacts of environmental damage uh, and the impacts of climate change uh, for, for numbers of reasons. And this really uh, does something to uh, to, to, to address the disparities that underserved uh, communities have. And uh, it, it makes a big push uh, towards um, replacing uh, fossil fuel vehicles with electric vehicles and the infrastructure required to, um, uh, to support an, an electric vehicle fleet. Um, uh, uh, and you know, what's so interesting is that this bill, uh, this legislation comes at a time when the Supreme Court just took a whack at the Environmental Protection Agency in terms of the EPA's ability to um, regulate greenhouse gases in its permitting uh, and regulatory oversight of, of, uh, of power plants. Well, I mean, that's, you know, we have a Supreme Court that certainly is, is moving in the wrong direction and, uh, you know, providing a uh, little comfort to, uh, to what we need to do. Nonetheless, um, you know, one of, the, one of the aspects of the Supreme Court has been 
you know, you can't do these things versus most effectively, you know, with executive action because it can be overturned so easily. But here we have legislation. This is what we need. This is the best way to get this done. This is Capital Close-Up. We've been talking with Rob Werner about climate change, global warming, energy and environment here in New Hampshire and in the country. Rob, thanks for joining us. As always, your expertise is paramount. We'll be back next week with more.